Well, good morning. It is an honor to have Katia uh, with us this morning. I think it's a visual, too, that even though we won't see the finished product this morning, that's kind of the way it works in our lives. Not only does it take time for it to show up to see what God is really doing in our lives, but even, I think, of the different canvases also representing perhaps our different lives together as a church. That only when they're put together does the real beauty of the work of God really make sense in our lives. And you don't want to miss next Sunday because we're going to have the unveiling of whatever it is she's doing. <laughs> because uh, part, part of the way this works, too, is that she is inspired as we sing and as words are spoken. So I'm excited to see what that looks like. Last week, we looked at the courage of Jesus. So thank you, Kelly, for doing a wonderful job in delivering the word last week. It's phenomenal. Let's give her a hand. I know some of you are getting like... Is it appropriate? It is appropriate. <clears throat> Praise God for that. Uh, this week, we're going to look at the justice of Jesus. Dave Hagler was an umpire in a recreational league in his spare time. In an LA Times article, he shared this. I was driving too fast in the snow in Boulder, Colorado, and a policeman pulled me over and gave me a speeding ticket. I tried to talk him out of it, tell him how worried I was about insurance, etc. And he said that I should go to court and try to get it reduced or thrown out. In the first game of the next baseball season, I was umpiring behind home plate, and the first batter is this same policeman. <laughs> I recognized him, and he recognized me. He asked me how things went with the ticket, and I told him, swing at everything. The story of the umpire strikes back. <laughs> see, there is something satisfying when we see justice being done at some level. And I don't know about you, but when I'm watching a movie, I'm always happy when the good guys defeat the bad guys. But it doesn't always work out that way in real life, does it? Sometimes the strong take advantage of the weak, the guilty go unpunished. The unfairness seems to stand and sometimes even grow. And this is part of the deformation in our lives, the breaking of shalom, sin in our world that has taken place not only around us, but also within our very hearts. As followers of Jesus, we are to pursue justice because Jesus is just. Jesus Christ has never been a social activist, writes Leonard Sweet and Frank Viola, or a moral philosopher. To, to pitch him that way is to drain his glory and dilute his excellence. While justice is important, justice apart from Christ is a dead thing. Continue writing. The only battering ram that can storm the gates of hell is not the cry of the justice, but the name of Jesus. Jesus Christ is the embodiment of justice, peace, holiness, righteousness, and every other virtue. In Matthew chapter 12, Speaking about Jesus says, here is my servant whom I have chosen, the one I love in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him and he will proclaim justice to the nations. A bruised reed will not break and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out till he has brought justice through to victory. And I think if we went around the room, we'd find different definitions of justice. 
but I think we can try to define justice in a variety of ways. First, defending the vulnerable. And I think we look at this at the prophet Zechariah and what he wrote. He says, this is what the Lord Almighty said. Administer true justice. Show mercy and compassion to one another. Do not oppress the widow or the fatherless, the foreigner or the poor. Do not plot evil against each other. The widows, the fatherless, the foreigner, the poor are all groups that have no power. And this time they were vulnerable and the Lord commanded his people to show mercy and compassion to these very specific groups. Justice can also be defined as love made visible. When we love someone, we will do whatever we can to help them in their time of need. In James chapter two, verses 15 and through 17 says, suppose a brother or a sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well-fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. See, James had a way of linking action with faith. Most broadly, justice could also be defined as reflecting heaven on earth, the restoration of shalom here in our midst. See, in the Lord's Prayer, he teaches us, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In heaven, God's will is done perfectly. There is no sin. It is completely perfect shalom and it's what God originally intended for us. So when we pray the words of the Lord's Prayer, we're asking for the realities of heaven to show up right where we are, here and now. So in heaven, no one treats another person unfairly because of their color of skin or their race or their accent or for whatever reason. So we pray for that to become a reality in our communities and to take action toward that at here and now, on this side of eternity. In heaven, no one goes hungry, so we work toward that ed here on earth to make that a reality. See, there are many issues of justice confronting our society today. Racial inequality, human trafficking, abortion, poverty, climate concerns, immigration, and on and on goes the list. It seems like anywhere you turn, you could find a different cause and a cry for justice wherever we turn. When we begin engaging with justice issues, some may say that we're becoming too, quote unquote, political in nature, and begin labeling us to belonging to a particular political camp or ideological camp for that matter. But the justice of Jesus is not political, it's biblical, it's eternal, and it transcends the value system of this world. There are more than 2,000 verses in scripture that deal with this reality of justice, second only to idolatry. And someone said, God is not a donkey or an elephant. He is a lion and a lamb. He is the king of kings and we are citizens of this kingdom first as followers of Christ. In Matthew chapter six, verse 33, Jesus calls us to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. The kingdom of God is life when God is fully 
in charge, bringing in, ushering in, the breaking in of shalom here in our midst. See, seeking God's will first means that we won't form our position on an issue based on a political party's platform or some ideology. No political party fully represents the kingdom of God. Some of you are like, I don't know about that. I want to, I want to repeat this. Some of you are like, I want to. No political party in this world represents the kingdom of God. That is not their purpose to do so. It is a deformation of God's truth when we try to make our political party fit God's word or God's word into a political party. Dr. Larry Hurtado has a, as a scholar who wrote about the history of the early Christian church. And he followed how a tiny group of early Jesus followers became a movement that overcame the paganism of their time and also the Roman Empire. So aside from the power of the Holy Spirit, Hurtado contends that one of the reasons the church grew was that there was no community like it in the world. The church was marked by five distinctive features during its time, all of which made it stand out in their society around it. Number one, it was multiracial and multi-ethnic. Two, it cared for the poor, asking the wealthier to share with the poor. Three, it stood against infanticide and abortion. Four, it held that marriage and sexuality was between one man and one woman for life. Five, it was nonviolent, advocating passivism both personally and nationally. Today, if you were to break those five points down, the first two traits would be considered liberal positions in many ways, and the second two would be considered conservative positions. And the last one doesn't fall in either category. Timothy Keller, a pastor, and also John Mark Comer make the following observation. So the early church could not be considered either liberal or conservative. That is, not because they were trying to be centrist, avoiding controversial positions on any subject. To the contrary, those positions were very unusual in their time altogether. And the reason the early church doesn't fit a category is that it's based on the, on the values, based on the kingdom and principles of the kingdom of God, not political platforms or societal norms. That is still true for us today. And no single human ideology mirrors the value or the values of the kingdom of God. See, our goal is not to advance a political ideology but to live according to the way Jesus would want us to live. See, the justice and rule of God will counter the world's patterns and its deformation. That means that we will approach each justice issue by asking, how can I express love in this situation to this person? Sometimes we're more concerned about our image before God and before others. And we neglect to do what God has actually called us to do. In Matthew chapter 23, we have an exchange that we read about Jesus addressing religious leaders. Several woes are listed out for them. And he writes in verse 23 of chapter 23, 
Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill, and cumin, but you have neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. You blind guides, you strain out a gnat, but swallow a camel. When I first read this years ago, I had no idea what Jesus was talking about. No idea. So we're gonna unpack this a little bit of what he's saying to us. Because uh, I don't deal with a lot of spices in my home. It all, it all comes in bottles and you just shake it and do it. But what happens, what is happening is these guys, the Pharisees and the scribes, were very intentional about making sure that everything they had, they tithe, they gave 10% of everything they had to God, which is admirable. But notice that Jesus calls them hypocrites, not because they give to God, but, be, but because they hide behind their giving. And in turn, they fail to do the more important thing. Another version of your scripture may say weightier things, like justice and mercy and faithfulness. Jesus calls them blind because they're so caught up appearing to be formed in holiness by what they do, but in reality, they're being deformed by their own pious acts. Notice that Jesus doesn't ridicule their tithing for going above what the law required regarding gardening herbs. He goes beyond that. They choose to put their own law regarding herbs in their garden. And they list out mint, dill, and cumin. So picture yourself cooking. Anybody you like to cook? Some of you. Everybody's like, well, I cook anymore, right? But think about this. You're cooking. You're making something. And you're going to put a spice into your food. And you're counting out the grains of salt. Nine for me. And you have a special bowl and one for God. And you do the pepper the same way. You want some cilantro? Well, nine leaves for me and one for God. At the end, I save it all and then I bring it all to the temple. The intentionality by which these people live their lives is impressive. But it falls short of what Jesus desired. He has shown you, O mortal, what is good and what does the Lord require of you? of us, to act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. That's why Jesus uses this hyperbole between a camel and a gnat. The gnat was the smallest insect, animal, that could make a person unclean. The camel was the largest, according to the law. And here's the thing. They had set up all these different straining processes with their wine. Ever had your wine sitting out and a little bug flies in? What do you do? You hear something like, you get it out. You didn't even realize it was there. They were so careful with what was happening that they had these special lids and straining processes for their wine because they did not want a gnat to be in there because if it was, therefore they would be considered contaminated, defiled, impure. So they went through that straight, um, strenuous process and they paid attention to all the little things but in turn missed the big thing. We can get caught up in all sorts of little things 
even with the best of intentions. And if we're not careful, it can lead us astray. Here's the thing that I've noticed. Jesus never dismissed their desire to be holy, never downplayed it, never even made fun of their intentional efforts. He never said, oh, don't worry about that. It's no big deal. That was the Old Testament. That was actually a long time ago. It doesn't really apply to you anymore because I'm here. He didn't say that. If anything, Jesus always elevated holiness. He would say, you're familiar with, the command, with this commandment, thou shalt not commit adultery, right? You know it, and they would shake their heads, yes, because they knew the law. Well, if a man thinks lustfully in his heart, then he has committed adultery. Jesus takes it a step higher. See, a Jesus-shaped life is central to living out the important things in our lives because it's an overflow of who we are in Christ, of who Christ is in us. In 1972, some of you may remember Eastern Airlines, Flight 401, flying from New York to Miami. It was supposed to be a routine flight, but the flight crashed right before it landed, and over 100 people died, about 76 people survived. And it was a complete tragedy, one that could have been avoided. See, the tragedy would never have occurred but for a single burnt-out light bulb. And this particular light bulb was supposed to let the pilots know that their landing gear was down. Yet, as Flight 401 approached Miami International Airport and their landing gear was released, the bulb failed to come on. The captain, the first officer, and two others decided to put the plane on autopilot. And all four of them went to look at the problem of what was happening. And somewhere in this moving around, in this tiny confined cockpit, somebody knocked the plane off autopilot. And by the time someone noticed that they were losing altitude, the plane hit the ground going more than 200 miles an hour. See, what happened is they decided to focus on the small thing, this light bulb, instead of actually flying the plane. And I think this happens to us many times. See, tragedies happen when we're distracted by the little things. We get so caught up in these little things, and I'm going to be careful how I say this, but I want you to hear me. We make sure that we are coming to church. We make sure that we're in some kind of group whenever we can. We give whatever we can, whenever we can. We're, true, we're doing these things that seem so big, but in reality, they're really so small. What I'm, not, what I'm saying is keep doing these things, but don't stop there. Go beyond these things that are in front of us that we ask you to do week in and week out, but don't stop there. Ask the Spirit of God, where is it that you may be leading me to display shalom in some way, justice, mercy, faithfulness somewhere? Because being formed in his image will inevitably, inevitably lead us to take care of these more important things of ushering the peace of God in this world. In Luke chapter 10, Jesus tells a story about a man traveling from Jerusalem to Jericho when all of a sudden he was attacked by robbers. They beat him up and they strip him of his clothes and leave him laying naked on the side of the road, half dead. 
And a priest walks by this guy and he sees the guy laying on the side of the road and what does he do? He crosses the street, the normal thing to do. Then a Levite, also a religious person, sees this naked man suffering on the side of the road and he too decides to cross the street and avoid the dying man. See, Jericho was a wealthy, religious little town and people were very careful to keep the law. Their law stated that even the shadow of a dead person could contaminate you. So in their desire to preserve holiness, they withheld mercy and they crossed the street. It's also fascinating to me to think about the fact that this man is completely stripped naked. Because depending on what he's wearing, you could identify him to what people group he belonged to. But now you can't help but see a human being lying on the side of the road. The exterior labels have been removed. And as you know the story, many of you, a third person, a third man comes alongside the road, the same road, and it's a Samaritan. And when he saw him, he was full of compassion. And it was a compassion that propelled him to action. And he viewed this person as a human being. And he went to him, scripture says, and bandaged his wounds, pouring oil and wine. And then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day, he took out two denarii and gave it to the innkeeper. Look out after him. He said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expenses you may have incurred. The two men in the story were afraid that their holiness was going to be contaminated or defiled because they, if they showed compassion or mercy. Has that ever happened to you? Well, I don't want to get involved. That's going to get messy really fast. I'm just going to stay right here. But maybe what we ought to do is maybe take a step in that direction and figure out what that looks like. So worried about our holiness. Holiness is Christ in us. Not in the things that I do or not do. It's Christ's spirit in us. See, Christ seemed to run to the sick, to the oppressed, to the unclean, to the possessed, to the downtrodden, even to the dead. Jesus came and drew near to them. And he says, I want to display love here. See, the Spirit will lead us to places and encounter people we never thought we would in our own strength so that we may share the love, the peace, the mercy, the justice of Jesus. So I encourage you, ask God, what, what will the resolution of this issue look like in heaven? Whatever it is you're passionate about, whatever it is you're maybe conflicted about, ask, what does it look like in heaven? Then ask, how can I help restore shalom in this situation or in this relationship? What's my level of contribution here? When you read Jesus' words, this, the reality of justice, mercy, and faithfulness, they go hand in hand. See, given the deformed and corrupt systems of our world, it can seem like a daunting task trying to figure out what justice and mercy look like in our world. I think many times we think of justice as being about retribution in nature, that if someone did something wrong, then they will have to pay for it, we're gonna make things right, and that is justice. It's tooth for tooth, eye for eye, 
and whatever else we need to take to make it right. I don't think that's what scripture teaches. But the human display of justice and mercy don't go far enough. These concepts are tied to the restoration of shalom, of peace in us and in this world. God's grace is given to us for our sin, for forgiveness. And mercy is given to us for our wounds because of our need for healing. I want to tell you this. We have a great opportunity as a church to extend mercy to a very, a very special group of people. More specifically, a group of men. Did you know that one in 15 Americans will go to prison in his or her lifetime? Of those currently incarcerated, over 90% are getting out. Whether we like it or not, regardless of their sentence, they're getting out. And of those who get out, 51% of those who get out are going back to prison within four years. Recidivism rates in this country are growing. Rehabilitation seems to not have much an effect and impact in our society. Yes, these men have committed a crime. They broke the law and they have paid their debt to society, right? But when they get out, not only will they continue to pay, but they will continue to pay for it for the rest of their lives because they have to mark it on a form. And we see this person, these ex-convicts, these felons, laying on the side of the road and we cross the street because we don't want to contaminate ourselves. It's easy to talk about these hot topics and people and issues, but were, what does it look like in our own lives? And I ask myself, how long will these men and women, predominant men, will have to continue to keep paying for their sin? We'd rather avoid these, avoid these people and stay home and count our mint, our dill, and our cumin. Because it's safer, it's cleaner this way. I know this firsthand having worked inside the walls and helping men reintegrate their lives back into society for a number of years. I wanna encourage us to not cross the street. Let's figure out how to walk towards them, run towards these people in all these different areas of life that we're not sure how it's gonna play out. But be present to love. Our church, the Foundry, has been involved with a powerful ministry inside the prison walls called Kairos. Let's watch this video. I'm gonna tell you about Kairos, this prison ministry that comes inside them walls a dead man. A lot of people say we dead man. I mean, I was just a mad man. Everybody got a story. But when you really get touched by God, that's when you know you got a real story. Well, my name is Tommy Fisher. I was born and raised in Los Angeles, California. I grew up in the street gangs there. I got a lot of trouble. I ended up doing 20 years, 11 months flat in prison. I had an aggravated life sentence. I wasn't supposed to never get out. I ran the gangs in prison, you know, and I hurt a lot of men for some crazy reasons. 
I used to actually get Christians beat up because they say they wanted to come to Christ. That's how crazy and radical I was. But the, when they picked Kairos, they only picked the worst inmates on the unit because they want the roughest dudes on the unit, the fools, to get changed. And this ministry is actually going in here and showing this love and changing people like that. I'm going to tell you the truth. I went for their food. I didn't go to get saved, but God had set me up. When I was sitting there, man, you know, I was listening to this dude talk. You know when Paul was on the road to Damascus and Jesus, just Jesus' presence knocked him off that horse? I know for a fact I felt the presence of the Holy Spirit. I felt it like Paul felt it. And from that day forth, man, God has just been blessing my life. While I was in that prison, I got into this Thurapon Theological Seminary and Bible Institute. I got a bachelor's degree in biblical studies. I also went to college and I got me an LBT. I just thank God for God bless me. I got a license to counsel, you know. And I really thank God for what he changed me into because I used to be a monster. I used to really be a monster. The only reason why I don't know if I ever killed a man because I never went back and asked the man who I shot was he dead. But I shot a lot of people and I hurt a lot of people's lives. But ministries like Kairos can go inside them walls and show a man God's love. Man, if I could tell anybody, anybody about Kairos, man, it's changing lives. Because I got to give God back what he gave me. He gave me back my life. He gave me them years that the locust stole from me. He gave them back to me. <laughs> and I'm thankful. As part of this weekend, where we activate our people to go inside and to be with these men, you get to sponsor all sorts of things. You're going to receive a, a handout on your way out. I want to encourage you to take one for all the details. But one of the ones that stuck out to me is, is I learned about Kairos more in depth is that they need Oreo cookies. And you're like, what in the world are you talking about? Anybody like Oreos? Like these, these dudes love Oreos. And uh, you like Oreos? <laughs> We're gonna need about 18,000 Oreos for the Kairos event coming up, I'm serious. There's details on what kind of Oreos you can bring in and how they're supposed to be packaged. That's according to TDCJ and what we can bring in. But here's the thing. Whoever thought that justice and mercy would look like this? Because I think it can seem daunting when I look at our system and say, how in the world do I even start to make an imprint in this? Bring some Oreos. Can you bring some Oreos? I would love to see this sanctuary full of Oreos outside the narthex. I'm serious, just bring it, we'll figure it out. Because here's what happens with these cookies. They're not only given out as snacks for them in between their meals and something they look forward to because their prison system does not carry Oreos and they're commissaired. They don't have these. So it's not only a treat, but here's the thing. Everyone gets 12 cookies in a bag, that's what I'm told. And they're called forgiveness cookies. So if I've hurt someone, and I need to make amends, or I've wronged someone, then I go to this person. And all I have to show and to give is a cookie. 
I've been told that these cookies have saved lives because you're giving something precious to someone you care for. And you said, would you be my friend? Would you be my brother? Thank you, brother. Something as simple as that. As we come back up here for communion in a few minutes, Kelly, why don't you come on up? You've been given one of these on the way in, a prayer strip. You'd pull it out. A little pencil or a pen around you, maybe in the pew in front of you. If you're committing to pray for these men, I'm praying for you. Just put your first name. You don't need to put your address or anything. I get it. I'm not asking you to run these guys. Just put your name. It could be your, just your name. And what they do is they take these and they make them into a prayer chain. And while they're there from all the different churches and communities and the bodies of Christ praying, they make a chain around these guys that we will be lifting them up in prayer during this weekend. And I'd love for you to sign it, put your name on it. And as you come up for communion or even upstairs in the balcony, there'll be a table and you can lay them up here. Anywhere on the altars is, is a prayer. And I want us to respond this way. Let us pray. God, we thank you for your love and your grace. Lord, we want to see your justice, not our justice, not in what we think needs to happen beyond everything else in this world. But Lord, I pray in the name of Jesus that you would show us how to love, how to be present here and now. So Lord, move in our hearts, reveal to us the next step is what that looks like in our lives so that we can usher in your shalom into this world even more. In your name we pray and ask all of this. Amen.